Grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 14, as we have been for the last several weeks. Um, but we are also, we're going to be focusing on verses 11 through 14. Uh, today will be an introduction to those uh, verses, really. Um, and we'll, we'll camp out there for at least one more week, uh, if not longer than that. I'm sorry, can I give you some things? It's going to bug me. Thank you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. Um, you can tap someone, ask them to hand it to you or whatever. Uh, if you do not own a Bible, uh, that is our gift to you. Please take it um, and uh, walk right out. No one's going to chase you down or tackle you or anything. You just uh, just take it and, and go. Don't, don't look... I, I promise you're going to look over your shoulder. Don't look over your shoulder. Nobody is, they're going to be praising God that you took it, all right? So um, that's what it's there for. Ephesians 1, and let's read verses 3 through 14 together. Um, uh, we've been doing that over the last several weeks, and it's a great opportunity for us to uh, get the Word of God really down into our hearts. And so I'll try to set the cadence uh, for us. I'm reading out of the ESV, and so um, let's do that. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14 together. Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we look here at verses 11 through 14, uh, just a few things quick right off the bat. Two things right off the bat. In verse 11, it says, it starts out and it says, In Him we have what? Obtained what? An inheritance. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, who's the Him? Christ. So, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. But then, if we look down at verse 14, what does it say? Actually, in verse uh, 13, starting in verse 13... 
It says we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is what? The guarantee of what? Okay, so we're hearing that same word again. Okay, is it the same inheritance? Yes, same inheritance. Who's the guarantee of our inheritance in, until what? We acquire possession of it. So if we immediately jump right in, one of the first two things that, that we see as we look at this possession is we see, first off, Paul says, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. But then just a few verses later, what does he say? He says that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of that inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So right away we see that Paul's reminding us yet again of this already not yet tension that as believers we exist in. As believers in Jesus Christ, there is this tension that we live in between already and not yet. There are some things that are already ours in Christ that we have not yet acquired possession of. There are some things that are already accomplished in the work of Christ that is complete and yet that we have not yet fully realized in this life. Salvation itself is an already not yet work because we know that we have already been, uh, the penalty of sin has already been removed from us because of Christ's substitutionary atonement for us. The penalty of sin is already done. For those who are in Christ, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the penalty of sin carries no weight any longer because Christ has become for us a propitiation of sin. He has become a, a complete and total wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us and in our place. Not only that, He's not only our propitiation, but you ready for another one? He is our expiation. Remember that on the Day of Atonement that the high priest would place his hands on one goat and on that goat he would place the sins and that goat would be slaughtered. The innocence of that goat would be placed on the people. That's a double imputation, but there was another goat. Do you remember there was another goat? We refer to it as the scapegoat, right? And that goat also had the sins of the people laid upon it. But where would that goat be sent? Not to the altar, but out of the city. It was this picture of the sins of the people being removed from them. And what do we rejoice in today as believers in Jesus Christ? That our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Amen? They have been removed from us. And so there's this already since Jesus is our propitiation. He's also our expiation. And our sins have been placed on Him. His righteousness has been placed on us. And, and the penalty of sin is, is non-existent for those who are in Christ. Because that penalty has been poured out on Jesus Himself. So the penalty of sin has been removed. But the power of sin... And the presence of sin still remains. There's tension there, isn't there? Everyone nod your head and say yes. There is tension. If you don't, if you don't feel the tension, go read Romans chapter 7. When Paul, actually nearing the end of his life, says, the good I know I ought to do, 
I don't do, and the bad I wish I didn't do, I do do. Who can save me from this life of sin? Well, was, was Paul just uh, completely lost in sin? No, he's, he's speaking of this tension between the already and the not yet of the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. So we're, the penalty of sin is already removed for us because we have been justified. But the presence of sin and the power of sin remains. And now what begins is this process of sanctification whereby those who have already been justified by faith in Jesus Christ are daily now being removed from the power. The power of sin is daily being removed from their life bit by bit, day by day, all along the way, as the Holy Spirit is now conforming us into the image of His Son. And now we, what? we rest and we wait and we hope and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God when that day, when the actual presence of sin will be completely removed from us. And we will finally, in that sense, truly be saved. We talk about we have been saved, but truly we will be saved when not only the penalty, not only the power, but the actual presence of sin has been completely removed from us. And so it's actually more accurate to say, we, yes, we have been saved, but we are also being saved and we will be saved. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, when he says, I remind you, brothers of the gospel, that I've preached to you which you received. It's this past tense thing that's going on. It's, it's something that has happened, but he says, in which you stand. And so there's this present ongoing work that's happening in salvation. And he says, and by which you are being saved. And so there's this past, present, future thing that's going on. It's an already not yet work. And it's an already not yet tension that, that we live in. So we look here and we see that Paul says that we have an inheritance. Inher an inheritance belongs to children. There's a difference between a gift and an inheritance. A, a, an inheritance is something that, that is, is bequeathed, that is granted through bloodline. And we who are the redeemed. Remember, we have a new identity. We who once were not a people have now become the people of God. We, we have taken on a new identity. We are the redeemed. And we are the redeemed by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it's in this grace and in this faith that has been granted to us and given to us by Christ through His work that God has done something, what has He done? He has adopted for Himself a family. He's adopted for Himself children. And so we have learned over the last several weeks, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons. And as sons... We are co-heirs. And as co-heirs, that means that there is an inheritance for us. It's an inheritance that Paul says we have obtained. 
And the obtaining of that inheritance is wrapped up in what? What does he say? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So it's not an inheritance that is ours so long as we continue to get our act together. It's not an inheritance that is ours so long as we live holy and blameless and righteous before God in our own effort and our own work. It's not our inheritance so long as we keep our nose clean and make it to our 21st birthday so that we can get there. None of those are the prerequisites for which we obtain our inheritance. Our inheritance is something we have obtained, not by any effort or work of our own, but completely and totally wrapped up in the predestining purpose of a God who works all things together to the counsel of his own will. Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Remember just several weeks ago when we talked about Paul's identity change. And we talked about how he was this man who in the flesh was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, in keeping the law, blameless, he said. And yet, in Christ, in the perfection of the law personified, God himself incarnate, he looked upon himself through the lens of the cross and he saw that he was the chief of sinners. Remember when we talked about that? And we said that that should give us so much hope. Why? It should give us so much hope because on both sides of the coin, Paul has us all beat. Because there's no one here in this room that is blameless in the flesh the way that Paul was blameless in the flesh. And that means that we have to be brought low by the cross. And unless you are brought low by the cross, there is no salvation. Until you bow your knee to the cross of Jesus Christ and you admit that the punishment that he took was the punishment that you deserved, there is no salvation. I don't care if you admit that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried in history. I'm not looking for a mental ascent to facts that happen that the rest of the world admits Jesus died. It's not enough for you to admit that Jesus died. It's not even enough for you to confess that he was raised from the dead if you do not believe that his death was the one that you deserved. It's not enough if you don't confess that the life that he was raised to is the life that is now yours as an inheritance because of what he earned for you. It's more than just a mental ascent. It's a faith that only the Holy Spirit can provide to your heart where you believe that not only did he die, but he died a death that you deserve, the death that you deserve. It was your death that he died. And in raising, you were justified by grace through faith in his work alone. And so Paul's blamelessness in the flesh should give us hope because we know that if he couldn't be declared righteous according to his own work, that we have no hope in our own works and righteousness. Therefore, go to the cross of Jesus and be justified. Go to the empty tomb and be justified. And on the flip side of that, 
Him being the chief of sinners also gives us hope. Because not many of us in this room, I presume, are murderers. And Paul was. So why does that give us hope? Because if God could save Paul, he can save me. If God can save Paul, he can save you. That, that there is not one thing in this life that you have done, could do, or have thought about doing that is enough to cut you off from the grace that is offered in the sacrifice of God's own Son in Jesus Christ. His arm is not too short, and He is mighty to save. He's mighty to save. And so Paul says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Why? It's for the same reason. That as these Jewish believers who are hardened in their religion, whose hearts were softened by the love and the grace and the mercy of God, that should be to the praise of His glory in us because we can look at them as a first fruits and see that if God saved them, He can save us. If God saved them, He can save us. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This church is a, a great promise of Scripture. It's a promise that for most of my life I did not really believe existed. But a promise that if we will receive it this morning, can give such hope and rest and joy and assurance to our souls that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed that you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that your salvation is locked up, locked down, secure in Christ. It is secure in Christ and not just as long as you keep your nose clean. It's secure as long as Jesus keeps his nose clean. It's not dependent on the things that you can do. It's dependent on the things that Christ has done. It's not dependent on how well you stay the course. It is dependent on how well Christ stayed the course. And let me tell you how well He stayed the course. He offered up His life unto death in obedience to God. He stayed the course even when He didn't want it. In the garden when He prayed, God, if there's any way that this cup could pass for me and drops of blood poured through His pores, he stayed the course and he said, not my will, your will be done. His obedience counts for yours. And your salvation is secure. Your hope is secure because you have been sealed by the promise Holy Spirit when you believed. Not only that, but he says to us that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So quickly, two things I want you to see and then we're going to talk about something. 
It says we have obtained it in Christ, but we've not yet acquired possession of it. So what is our assurance that it is ours? Belief in a God who works all things according to the purpose of His will, number one. How, how can I know that this is mine? How can I know that, that this is what I have to look forward to? How can I know that it's something that has my name attached to it? And when I get there one day, they're not going to say denied to me. How can I know? Because I believe in a God, verse number uh, 13, 12, which one is it? 11. I believe in a God, verse 11, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. There's no one who has the ear of God that is bending it in such a way that it is bending it away from those who in eternity past, before this foundation of the world, that in love he predestined to adopt as his sons. I got to go to lunch uh, with a brother this week and he had a shirt and it said, uh, a home for every child. In God's kingdom, there's a home for every child. Every one of his kids has a home. How do I know? Jesus said, I am where, uh, in a little while, I'm going to go from here and you cannot go with me. Why? Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. I want you to grab a hold of this just for a minute. What that means is, is when the fullness of time comes and we stand in the glory of our God and we see the place that He has prepared for us, that there is a place for you. For every single one who believes, there is a place for you. Now grab this, and what that means is that there is not going to be any vacancies. Not only is there not going to be any vacancies, there is not going to be any homeless in the kingdom of God. There's no homeless in the kingdom of God. Why? For all those who believe Christ has gone to prepare a place for them. Well, how do we know? How do we know who's going to believe? Because before the foundation of the world, my God who works all things according to the counsel of His will, predestined to adopt them as His sons and His daughters. So not only is there going to be no vacancies, there's not going to be anyone wandering around going, where's my place? God's not going to be rubbing his head going, oh man, I, I, I didn't expect this guy. I mean, I, you know, like I, I looked, you know, I just, I, I'm flabbergasted. Jesus, I, you know, how long does it take? We're just going to have to get there. Um, brother, if you just kind of, you know, anyone got an extra room because, you know, I just, I, I was not prepared. No, guys, in the kingdom of God, there's no vacancies and there's no homeless. Praise, <laughs> Praise God. My roots are about to show in just a minute. I'm sorry. Thank you, Lord. There's no vacancy and there's no homeless. Why? Because we believe and serve and worship a God who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. No one is bending his ear away from his children. No one is, is doing anything to counsel him and the things that he can do. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world covenanted together that the Father would elect for himself a family, that the Son would go to work and do everything needed to accomplish redeeming that family and the Holy Spirit would then come and apply what Jesus did to their hearts so that they would believe and they could be counted as the adopted children of God. God covenanted it within himself 
And he is working all things together to the counsel of his own will. Why, why can we rest assured that what is promised to us in Scripture is ours? Because we have a God who's big enough to make it happen. Why, why can we preach the gospel in confidence no matter how great of a sinner someone is? Because we serve and worship a God who's big enough to save the chief of sinners. And there's no one too far outside of God's reach. Just look around. Consider yourself. Even as Paul writes to the Corinthians and he's like, guys, guys, just reality check. Not many of us were, you know, cream of the crop. Not many of us had it going on. And yet Christ saved us. So what is our assurance that it's ours? Belief in a God who works all things according to the purpose of His will, verse 11. But also, number two, because we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Not verse two, number two. Verse 13. We have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit when we believed. I want you to think about this salvation the four causes, material, efficient, formal, and final. Jesus himself is the material cause. He's the one that accomplished all things. And the efficient cause, the thing that, that enabled Jesus to do what he did is because God is rich in grace. Verse 7b. But the formal cause of how what Christ did and the riches of Christ God's grace, that those things were accomplished in the way those are applied to us, the formal causes through the preaching of the gospel. When was the promised Holy Spirit applied to us and when did He seal us? When we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and believed. That is the formal cause of how salvation and redemption is applied to us. It is through the means of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is that gospel applied to you day after day after day and week after week after week and month after month after month and year after year after year? It's through the continual preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I must be reminded that the cause of my salvation has come through the announcement of God's good news over me that Christ's work is sufficient and it has come to me because of the riches of God's grace. But we're missing one. The final cause, the purpose of all of this, which we see in verse 6, we see in verse 12, and we see again in verse 14, which is what? That all of this all of redemption, all of salvation, all this activity of the Father in the Son and by the Spirit is to the praise of His glory. It's to the praise of His glory. And so I want to tell you something this morning that may be a little bit hard for you. So prepare yourself. It's not as hard as this, but... Uh, just be reminded that there was a time in the book of Job 
when God comes to Job and he says, gird yourself like a man. The only frame of reference that I have for that is when I used to play baseball and my coach would say, cup check, gird yourself like a man. And this isn't that bad, but I'm just saying, prepare yourself. Some of you, this might be hard to hear. God is committed to the praise of His glory more than anything else. God is committed to the praise of His glory more than He is committed to me, more than He is committed to you, more than He is committed to us, more than He is committed to this earth or anything. God is absolutely committed to the praise of His glory. Now why is that hard to hear? Why could it be hard to hear? Because we've been sold a bill of goods that God is primarily concerned about us. And He's not. Can I tell you what God's concerned about? The thing that three times Paul has reminded us of in these verses 3 through 14. The praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. Now let me tell you why that should give you hope. Because God's glory is your ultimate good. God's glory is your ultimate good, but hear the word ultimate, as in final. God's glory is your final good, your ultimate good, that, that there is a good that is prepared for you, an inheritance, Paul says here, that is yours, that you've not yet obtained. And God's glory is your ultimate good, but does that mean that it's your daily, fleshly good? Does that mean that all things, when we, when we read in Romans chapter 8, that, that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to His purpose, does that mean that all things work out the way that we want them to? No. And can you please say praise God after that? I mean, think about it. Thank you. Think about, think about if God gave you everything that, he, that you wanted. Think about how the things that you have wanted has changed over the years. Think if God answered every prayer that you've ever prayed with yes, how terrible your life would be right now. If God answered every prayer that you have ever prayed with yes, and that was your life right now, I would not want your life right now. You should not want that life right now. What we think is good in this moment is so Broken and vague and clouded and shadowy and dim. Because we see through a glass darkly, but God sees perfectly. And He's not working all things together to the counsel of our will. He's not working all things together to the way that Mike thinks He should do them. Praise God. He's working everything according to the counsel of His own will. But our present circumstances, our inability to do good, be better, even other passages of Scripture can cause us to doubt the truth of these words. And that's why we're not going to only camp out here this week, but we're going to carry on. 
I've struggled with these words this week because of the circumstances that have gone on this week. And what I have to keep coming back to and reminding myself is that assurance is not warm fuzzies. Can, can you just grab that for a minute? That, that biblical, spiritual assurance is not warm fuzzies? Assurance doesn't mean that you walk around, you know, with your head in the clouds and a song in your heart every day. You know, because things just get better and better as the day goes. No. Assurance, true biblical spiritual assurance is faith that is resting in a locked down secure truth. It's faith that is in a locked down secure truth. When we went through the book of Luke and we looked at chapter 1 verse 4 and Luke writes to Theophilus and he says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He uses a word there called asphalion. Locked down secure, unshakable, solid, stable, immovable reality. Assurance is a locked down, secure, unshakable, solid, stable, immovable reality. It's based in the truth of who God is and what He's done. And what we must not do is allow present circumstances to shake us because that's what it shakes. It doesn't shake who God is and what He's done. That's locked down. It's secure. But we must remember what Paul and Barnabas said to the believers in Acts 14, verse 22, when he says that we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Did you know that was there? Paul and Barnabas come to the believers and he says, Guys, they, they look at all the things that have happened to Paul and Barnabas. They're like, should this really happen to people who love God? And they're like, guys, we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. I mean, look at 2 Corinthians 11, where we get just a taste of Paul's life in verses 25 through 28. 2 Corinthians 11, 25 through 28. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's the Christian life, folks. Beaten stone, shipwrecked, adrift, danger, 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 eight times danger, rivers, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, city, wild, land, sea, hungry, cold, tire, plus anxiety for all the churches. That's what Paul would describe as his best life now. You know why? Because it's the life that God by the counsel of his own will, determined that that was going to be Paul's life. And that's what Paul rested in. Because how does a person 
who walks through all of that not lose his ever-loving mind? He believed in a God who worked all things according to the counsel of his own will. He believed that at the moment he heard the word of truth, the gospel of his salvation, and believed on a road to Damascus and said, Lord, that he was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And though he had obtained an inheritance through Christ, he had not yet acquired possession of it. And that's why he said, for you, it's good if I hang around, but for me, it's better if I die. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I wonder how many times I've prayed that God would keep me from danger. And then I look at this and I see Paul say eight times he was in danger. I wonder how much more powerful, well, I'm, I'm playing with you a little bit now. Because I believe in a God who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. But maybe our own mindset when we went into the mission field, when we walked across the street to our neighbors would be a little bit better if we actually didn't pray, God, keep me from danger. So that when the danger that God already ordained for us to walk through shows up, we wouldn't be doubting where it came from. Because come on, that's what we do, right? We pray for these things and they don't happen and then we wonder what's wrong with God instead of recognizing that maybe our prayers were just misplaced. And rather than God allowing us to walk in a security that is in the flesh. He's asking us to walk into a security that's in the spirit, whereby we rest in who he is rather than what we are. And just in case you think those things were just for Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 36, a passage of scripture that we love to quote and talk about because it talks about who can, uh, you know, who can remove us from the love of God, but in the middle of all this, verse 35, who, sh who shall separate us from the love of Christ, then Paul lists some things that are definite possibilities. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the implication there is that for all believers, those things are a possibility. Probably more of a possibility than they were before you were a believer. <laughs> And I'm sorry if the person who led you in the sinner's prayer that you thought saved you instead of the Savior who is Jesus Christ uh, didn't tell you those things, hear them now. Those things are all a possibility. And we should be ready for them. And not run from them. But rather run to Christ. You see, Paul needed an unshakable anchor for his faith, and we see it here in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. It is grounded in the predestining purpose of a God who works all things according to the purpose of his will and for the praise of his own glory. And we need it too. In these times of crisis, where shall we go to find security and comfort? Everything else in life is shakable. Health, family, job, education, society, this world itself, the planet, all of it is shakable and changing, but there is only one thing that never changes. 
It's really not even a thing, is it? That's right, it's our God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unshakable, unmovable. And there is not one thing in this world that catches Him off guard. Our triune God, a God who is faithful to allow our security and everything else to be threatened. I'm going to say that one more time. Our God who is faithful to allow everything else that our security is in to be threatened. Why? Because He is committed to His own glory. And as long as we are finding satisfaction and security in things that are not God, God will be faithful to allow our security in those things to be threatened. As John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So if God is about His glory, what is He going to be about doing? He's going to be about doing everything that it takes to make sure that His people who are called by His name, who He predestined to adopt as sons and daughters, whom He sent His Son to accomplish the work so that they might be redeemed, and now is calling them to rest in Him, He is going to do everything that He needs to do to throw threaten their security and everything else so that they will find their satisfaction and their security in Him. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And what is sin, church, except our effort to find satisfaction, security, or comfort in anything other than God? We must repent and keep on repenting. And keep on resting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. These times and these seasons, church, they have purpose. Both local and global, temporal and eternal, personal and collective. But one thing they should do for every believer is drive us to our knees and back to God. A God who is sovereign. A God who is in control who is working all things according to the counsel of His own will, a God who in love predestines and is keeping His children. He's keeping them. If it's up, for, if it's up to you to hang on to God, you will fail. Praise God, it's not up to you to hang on to Him, but He is the one who has promised to hang on to you. Ever since you heard that word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is your guarantee of inheritance until you acquire possession of it. That inheritance is an inheritance that God is keeping for His children imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven 
as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3-9. So these times, these circumstances, what they are doing for us is they are doing what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. They are making for us, they are creating for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Paul admonishes us to look to things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen. In the middle of these times, don't, don't look at what's going on. Don't lose faith. Don't look at what's going on and say, oh, God, where are you? Look to the things that are unseen and know that you serve and worship a God. Immutable, unchangeable, eternal who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And what he's looking for in you right now is to find satisfaction and security in him above all things. Would you stand with me this morning? I invite you as we stand this morning, as we get ready to come to a table that God has prepared for us, to take an honest account of your life, I have to stand here this morning and I have to say that, that even this week there have been moments in time where, where I have found my satisfaction and my security in lesser things. I've, I've looked at my bank account and you know, calculated the days that it's going to last and I've, I've, I've looked at my own efforts and the things that I've done, the things that I've tried to do and I've said I'm doing everything that I can. I, I, church, I'm sick and tired of saying... Stuff like, I'm going to work like it all depends on me and pray like it all depends on God. Church, work because it all depends on God. Pray because it all depends on God. You're going to find in the next few weeks that everything that Paul has said in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, he has said, and it's going to lead him not to then become lackadaisical and say, well, then God's got it all worked out, but then to pray one of the most powerful prayers in the New Testament over the Ephesians church. God working all things according to the counsel of his will. If that makes you lazy, you have misheard the word of God. It should actually propel you into prayer, propel you into faith, propel you into action. Because God's sovereignty does not mitigate our responsibility. And His sovereignty is not contingent on our responsibility. What that basically means is that the things that we do doesn't change God working all things according to the counsel of His will. But it also means that whatever we do isn't making God go back to the drawing board to get a new will. We rest in a God who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And that should not lead us into laziness, but rather it should propel us into action. And so where have you been finding satisfaction and security what have you been looking to? What, what, what is bringing you the most joy right now? And it's not to say that those things are wrong. 
Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. But those good gifts are there for you to praise His glory, not to find ultimate satisfaction and security in. Enjoy good things, but enjoy them as the gifts that they are from God. And do not allow them to become idols whereby you take comfort in or rest in or find satisfaction or security in things that are less than God. So what do you do when you see those things? What do you do right now, even as we get ready to come to the table and you know that those things are there and you, you take an account of your life and you even pray right now. As David prayed, God search me and know me inside and out. See if there's any wicked way among in my heart and lead me in paths of righteousness. What you're praying is you're saying, God, would you just point out to me recognize that, that you have blind spots and say, Holy Spirit, would you point out my blind spots and show me where I'm finding security and comfort and satisfaction in lesser things. And as he shows those things to you, right now as you pray, just lay them at his feet in prayer. Lay them at his feet in prayer. And if you have never found satisfaction in Christ... If this is the first time that you've heard the word of truth, then know that this word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. It's the good news of your salvation. That though you are accounted with the chief of sinners, Jesus is mighty to save. And he came and he lived a perfect life so that his life could count for yours. So that it wouldn't be up to you to... Be perfect. And then he died a death that you deserve because you couldn't do it. But he not only lived and he not only died, he came back to life so that you could be justified before God. And today, if you would believe that word of truth, that gospel, that good news, then today you will be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who will be your guarantee of your inheritance as a child of God until you acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And that Holy Spirit will cry out in your own heart, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. You will look to God as your Father rather than your enemy, rather than as someone who wants to strike you down. You will look at Him as a good, perfect Father who opens up His arms wide to you, wide as the cross. And He says, everything you've needed, I have already provided. Come, Come, my love. Come, my lovely one. Come. Oh, God, may we receive this today. May we know this today. May it be a lockdown, secure truth for us today. May we hear those words. Come, my lovely one. Come. My grace is sufficient for you and my banner over you is love. Come, my lovely one, come and enter into my rest. I pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.